Good morning, everybody. Uh, when somebody passes an exam in life, or when somebody has a new baby, uh, when someone buys a new house, or when someone gets the job that they've been really longing for, or when somebody has an anniversary, like an, an iconic anniversary, what do, you, what do you often say to those people? Well, I bet you probably say to them, congratulations, right? Congratulations on the new baby. Congratulations on the new house. Congratulations on passing that test. Congratulations on such an epic anniversary. You know, this is, we're, we're used to this kind of stuff. I wonder if you've ever had somebody say to you, congratulations, you're poor. You know, congratulations, you're hungry. You know, congratulations, uh, you're in tears. Congratulations, people hate you. We, we often don't have anybody say that kind of stuff to us, right? But this is exactly what Jesus says to us this morning in our passage. So let's read it. It's Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. It says, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray God this morning as we open up your word. Um, I pray that we wouldn't just study it and read it, God, but that it would really read us, that, it, that uh, we, would, we would be studied, God, by your word, Lord, in such a way that it would expose us and reveal uh, things in our life that you're wanting to uh, reveal. God, ultimately, we pray that your word would propel us towards deeper trust and satisfaction in Jesus. And so we pray, God, right now, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us up, um, that these words, God, would really truly be your words to us as your people in this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, these words, guys, that we find here in 20 through 22 are often referred to as the Beatitudes. Uh, you'll see a comparable list over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But these are, these are words of blessing, okay? They're words of blessing, and they're words directed at someone, basically telling them to be happy. Like, hey, you should be happy. Blessed are you, right? Congratulations, okay? So Jesus here is saying, blessed are you 
when you find yourself in these circumstances? Well, this isn't our perspective normally on life, is it? It's kind of like the other day I, I purchased a new lawnmower and I brought it home. It came in a huge box and I took it out and I put it together. And then I was looking at this enormous box. Okay, I loved the lawnmower. Now I'm staring at this thing that I just view as a really annoying errand that I have to run. Because basically I'm like, this box is too big. I can't break it down and just stuff it into my recycling bin. I'm going to have to like run this thing to a recycling center. And as I'm processing this thing that has trash in my mind, my, my son comes out and he goes, Dad, wow, that's a huge box. Can I have it? I want to use it to build a spaceship. Okay. And I was just like, what in the world? No, I'm, I'm throwing this thing away. This is a, a nuisance to me. And my son's like, no, 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 don't throw it away. You know, so I'm, my perspective, I'm looking at this box and it's something I need to recycle. You know, my son sees something different. I see it as trash. He sees it as a treasure. You know, I see it as something that needs to be recycled. He sees it as a rocket. Okay. This, I think, illustrates a lot of how we view our life because we all have a perspective on everything in our lives. And here, Jesus is actually wanting us to gain a perspective that couldn't be more different than the world. And Jesus looks at the world and he sees it very differently than often you and I do. And as his people, he wants us to gain this perspective this morning. And man, do we need it. We really, really need it. So this is what I want to do. Let's kind of walk through this. Uh, But really, our attention is meant to be drawn to the beginning of his teaching. But before we get to that point, we really need to look at the setting of what's going on here and really looking at when is Jesus saying these things and who is he saying this to? So we need to look at the setting. Then ultimately, I want us to see how these beatitudes and these woes are presenting an upside down kingdom that thirdly, I hope we'll find our hope in the upside down king. So here, let's just look at this setting really quick. This is a really important We must see this. Okay, so when is Jesus saying this? Okay, think about this. What has happened? If you've been following along, you saw at the end of chapter 5 that Jesus was ridiculed for eating with tax collectors and sinners, people that would be viewed as unclean, okay? And then he tells the religious people, he tells the Pharisees that he has come to do a whole new thing, that basically he is new wine, is how he compares himself. In the Pharisees, he says, you're looking at me saying, we like the old wine, right? The old is better. We like our perspective and our life the way that it is. And then last week we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath. He did some things that in the eyes of the Pharisees were not what you should be doing on the Sabbath. And in response to all that, the Pharisees decide we're going to, we got to get rid of this guy. And this is the first time in Luke, last we saw this last week, that we see that basically the Pharisees are going to try to kill Jesus. So after all that's gone on, Luke shows us that Jesus has a plan. Basically, he goes out all night and he prays all night long, experiencing communion with his father in prayer. Okay, He's facing a big decision. He's communing with his father and dawn breaks and he looks at the crowd of his disciples and he calls 12. He picks out 12 and calls them to himself up on the mountain. Okay, right? He calls out these people, these 12 apostles is what he calls them. And apostles literally just refer to uh, those as being sent ones. Okay, these are the 12 sent ones. So these are the people that are going to continue and be the bedrock and foundation of Jesus' work once Jesus leaves. Okay, And so Jesus is saying he's here to do something altogether new, 
right? That's when he's doing all this. And now he's calling out 12 different people amongst the crowd. We know here what Jesus is doing, right? We get it, right? It's just like if there was a gym full of high school basketball girls, you know, playing basketball at Barlow's gym, and the head coach, Butch Hudson himself, uh, walks in and starts handpicking 12 people out of that crowd of girls playing basketball. We know what Butch is doing, don't we, right? He's probably starting a basketball team. You don't call out 12 people, put jerseys on their backs, and then wonder what's going on. That's exactly the idea of what Jesus is doing. He calls out 12 apostles. This is the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, is it not? What's he doing here? Guys, Jesus is beginning to establish the true Israel, the people of God. He's the king of a kingdom that is arriving, and he's drawing out his citizens that are to be a part of that kingdom. What does he do next? He comes down the mountain. He stands on a level place, we're told. And then what does he do? Please notice that there are a lot of people here. There's the 12 that he's just handpicked, right? But then there's the crowd of disciples that we see in verse 17, but also a great multitude of people that have come from all over the place, right? even the coast of the sea. So Gentiles are even in this crowd. And then he begins to teach. Who is he teaching? Well, Luke wants us to know that in verse 20 that Jesus is teaching his disciples, right? This is, this is what's going on here. And this should trigger for us um, memories of Moses coming down the mountain in Exodus. He goes up and he's with God and he comes down the mountain and he gives out the law, right? And when Moses comes down and he, he gives out the law, we know in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that one of the things that he imparts to God's people Israel is he gives them these laws that are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And Jesus is doing a similar thing here because he's announcing what? Blessings and woes. And these are perfectly paralleling each other, right? Blessings in verses 20 through 23, woes in 24 through 26, and they're literally referring to a similar thing. We have the poor contrasted with the rich, right? The hungry and the well-fed, right? The sorrowful and the laughing. We have the persecuted and the popular. But there's a huge difference between Moses and Jesus here, though, and that the difference is that Jesus isn't giving out rewards for obedience and penalties for disobedience. Jesus is actually just describing those that are part of his kingdom, those that can be a part of his kingdom, and those that are not, those that cannot, right? What, what he's teaching here is radically different perspective than the rest of the world. And let's be honest, if it's often very different than our own perspective as well, isn't it? We see what Jesus says, as something that we should recycle and he sees it as a spaceship. Or we see things as a spaceship and Jesus is like, let's get rid of that. Right? You know what I mean? Right, this is exactly what we have going on here. So this is the important thing that we must keep in mind. Like, when is Jesus saying this and who is he saying it to? Right? He's beginning something altogether new. These are the first words of teaching out of his mouth from that moment. And what's he showing us? He's showing us an upside-down kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. The first thing here we see is in the Beatitudes, we see his kingdom. Guys, when you pair these blessings with the woes, the world's values are mocked in a really jarring way. These blessings exalt what the world despises, and it actually rejects what the world admires. And as we look at these Beatitudes here, it's, it's pretty challenging for us, I think, to receive these Beatitudes at face value, which I, which I think we really need to fight for. 
here. And not just try to jump all over the Bible and try to figure out um, and, and rationalize away what this is actually saying. Right? And I think it's challenging to us because of the way that so often many of us live our Christian lives and view a Christian life as an acceptable way of living a Christian life. I mean, let's just consider fictitious people here for a second, okay? Let's meet Bill and Marge, okay? Bill and Marge, they grew up in Gresham, Oregon. They, they lived in a great house their whole life. They grew up in the church. They learned a ton about the Bible from the very beginning. They were middle-class people. Their parents had some good jobs where they didn't ever need to feel the weight of poverty or wanting anything. They come to the place in their life where they are scared of dying, they're afraid of death, and God seemed pretty real, and they believed Jesus was a historical person who did the things the Bible said he did, and they didn't want to go to hell, and so they put their faith in Jesus, right? Then they try to do the things that are required, they think, to be a Christian, so they go to church regularly, right? They serve in the church, they're a part of maybe a small group, they don't sin like in all the big ways, you know, that you're, we're told we're not supposed to sin, but they have their acceptable sins that everyone says, well, that's okay, everyone does that, you know. And so they don't do the things that other Christians really look down on. So they feel good about themselves. If they're honest, God, he's on paper important to them, but he's not really that important. He's not, especially not their everything. He, he's more of an addition to their life. I mean, it would be really hard for them to admit this because they know the right things to say, but quite honestly, it's, it's much easier for them to kind of live life on their own terms, right? They have enough money in the bank. They don't think they'll ever really been that bad. So they never really truly mourned over their sin or some of just the suffering of that in the world. They're more dependent on themselves than on God. They hunger and thirst to be comfortable, right? To take the path of least resistance. Whatever the crowd they're around thinks is best, they just go with that, Right? They, their desires and affections for what they think they should do and what they want are things that they often can obtain and achieve, and so they're pretty satisfied with their life. And whenever they read about being persecuted, they might just say, man, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I live in America, you know, where I'm free. As you obviously see what I'm doing, these people, if we're being honest, describe a vast majority of the Christian population. And if I'm being honest, it's describing a lot of my life so often. And it's often embraced and assumed that that's, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. And I say all that because when we read these Beatitudes, we're faced with something that's so different. It's upside down. Look at verse 20. We see Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what? Blessed are you who are poor, right? For yours is the kingdom of God. Congratulations, you're poor, right? This requires a redefinition of what blessing is, isn't it? Well, we can't just over-spiritualize this because Luke isn't over-spiritualizing it yet, right? Jesus is talking to people who've given up their homes and their jobs to follow him. Some of these people are no longer fishermen, right? They left that behind. We know that Levi or Matthew has left his tax collector job. Hey, they've left everything. So Peter in Mark chapter 10 says, see, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. He's talking to people who are actually literally poor, okay? And in the first century, Israel, poverty meant a lot of things, right? And number one, it meant a loss of power, and it resulted in being pushed to the margins of society. That's actually true in every society. Those with the money are the movers and shakers in societies, and the poor, they're often marginalized. I mean, just take the caste system of India, for example. In that caste system of India, we actually find the perfect example for the word that Jesus is using here. 
In the caste system of India, we see the word that they use, Dalit, which means crushed, means oppressed. It's used for people in the caste societies who are untouchables. They're at the very bottom. They're outcasts in society. And that exactly captures what Jesus is saying here. And so, guys, it is, it is no mistake that you and I look around the world and we notice that the typical Christian is actually not a, a, a white European American believer with a Western view of Christianity, right? We forget this. We're often really egocentric in our faith, right? We, we, we very much so are. But when you look around the world at the majority of Christians, just population-wise, the majority of Christians actually live in a developing country, don't they? And they're overwhelmingly poor. But not poor on the level that we would give to poverty, on, on a level of poverty that's way below that even. And so Jesus says to us, to, to his people, congratulations, you are blessed. How can he say that? I mean, is Jesus socially tone deaf or something? Well, not at all. He can say that because of what he says next. He says what? Yours is the kingdom of God. Let me read that carefully. He says yours is, not will be, but it is the kingdom of God. So they're experiencing poverty simultaneously while they are a part of the kingdom of God. To be clear, Jesus is not blessing poverty in itself. He's not saying, he's not preaching a a poverty gospel here, saying you have to be poor or something like that. But he is speaking to anybody who would follow him, and, and people who follow him, those who do so, are people who don't see wealth as the greatest benefit and comfort for their life. He's talking to those who know that they actually just rely on God and nothing of their own, ultimately. You see verse 21, he goes, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. When? When will you be satisfied? Well, it's, it's not today. He pushes this out into the future. Do you see this? This is talking about heaven and eternity, to be sure, at least. But we also read about the birth of the early church in Acts, and we see even partial fulfillments of satisfaction for those that are hungry. Because when people receive the gospel in Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, that they begin to open their hearts and their hands to their possessions, and they share everything in common. And we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to everybody who was in need. And they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Saying, you might be hungry now. You might not be fully satisfied with this world, right? But you're blessed then because you will be satisfied one day. It doesn't negate our need to to help each other now, and we get this. That's why later in Acts, when you see um, the, the, the famine that hits Judea in first century, there's churches in modern day Turkey that send Barnabas and Paul with these gifts to help out those churches that are in need. And we've even experienced this firsthand as a church at GBC when the pandemic first hit in March. We said, hey, we're anticipating that other people are gonna be in need because of job loss or other reasons. So if you are compelled, give financially so we can help people who are in need when that time comes. And you guys just responded so easily. I mean, I barely even had to announce it, right? Your, your hearts are really open to this idea that yes, we don't just say, hey, wait for heaven, but God is really meeting needs for his people through his people, right? And so we see that partial fulfillment in the church, but ultimately we know Jesus pushing this out even further into heaven saying, you will be satisfied. 
the end of verse 21, it says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Okay? And we know this as believers, if we're all being honest, like we, we do weep, don't we? we? We know Christians who are lonely and weep alone in the night, right? We know Christians who are depressed, who are grieving about things in their life, people they've lost, or just grieving at the sin and suffering in the world. We know Christians who have problems in their marriage or friendships that are not reconciled or family members who've left the faith. And Jesus says, congratulations to you who are crying. What an insensitive thing to say it would seem, but weeping, you guys, to a Christian is the most normal thing in life. We know that life isn't the way that it should be, that there is still evil in the world, that all creation is groaning for the redemption of God in the end, and weeping shows us then that our hearts are in tune with God's. We don't merely weep at the loss of our toys. We weep at the realities of suffering brought about by sin in this world. And so Jesus says, blessed are you. Why? Because we get it. Jesus' people cry because they get it. And because we get it, we know that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be weeping and crying no more. We will laugh and we will only know joy in that day because there will be no more sin, therefore no more suffering, therefore no need to weep. But although like hunger, this is pushed out in eternity, we are not designed to weep alone, are we? Right? In the same way, we have the family of God now, right? We have the church. We don't just gather to preach. We don't just gather uh, to sing. We gather to mourn with one another at times. Even a pandemic cannot stop that. So I mean, encourage you in this moment, if you're in a place of weeping, of grieving, um, of pain or suffering or loss, and you are weeping, uh, you are not meant to weep alone. Uh, and please let somebody know about that. I know that people would rush to your side and want to mourn with you. And that day when you come out of that as well, rejoice with you. Guys, being a Christian may bring tears in this world, but even now you have a family to weep with you. And finally, Jesus says in verse 22, congratulations, people hate you, right? Blessed are you when people hate you. And you guys, Jesus is speaking of personal experience here. When he ate with those sinners in chapter 5, right, he was resented. When he didn't fast and his disciples didn't, he was heavily criticized. And then when he healed people on the Sabbath, people decided we're going to kill this guy. Jesus says, if the world hated me, don't be surprised that it hates you. Let me just consider John. It says, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. I don't know about you, but this rings true in my life. I mean, I may not have been beaten uh, yet. I mean, maybe that would come someday. But I, I, I do feel excluded. I do feel and have been insulted. And it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. We want to belong. It's painful to be an outsider. I mean, and just consider Christians as a whole. I mean, how much worse even more, more so for someone who's a Jewish person who converts to following Jesus and how many Jewish people would treat that person as if they were dead and hold a fictitious funeral for them. Or I've met many Muslims in my life who've converted to Christ 
and have had family members, even their own parents, seek to literally kill them. Right? You think of people in Egyptians, you know, who have a cross tattooed on their wrist so that when they're being persecuted, they can look down and hopefully um, through seeing that cross have the perseverance to endure that kind of persecution. Or you think of the Vietnamese Christians or Indonesian Christians or Pakistani Christians or Iranian Christians and many, many others who suffer imprisonment, even martyrdom for their faith. And Jesus says in verse 23, what? Rejoice in that day. Well, what day is he referring to? It's not a future day at all. It's a present tense day. He's saying, rejoice in the day that you are experiencing that persecution on account of me, right? Leap for joy, for behold, he says, your reward is great in heaven. Don't put your hope in a reward now. It's, it's waiting for you on that great and glorious day. See, when you suffer for Jesus, it's identifying you with him and exposing how he has identified himself with you. Now, be very careful to identify yourself here in these verses if Jesus wouldn't identify himself with your actions. Be very careful of that. Sometimes we might foolishly think we're being persecuted for our faith, but we might actually be being persecuted, honestly, for being a jerk or something like that, or not being very loving, just setting aside things that are actually spirit fruit in our life and Christ-like actions, and when we've abandoned that and we say we're being persecuted, we're not being persecuted for the sake of Jesus. We're not being persecuted on account of him, because we look nothing like him. Or just because I hold to a certain political view, or I'm not being persecuted for somebody for having that view. We must realize that this is calling us to realize that when we are persecuted on behalf of Jesus, not because of some other subset views that we have or non-Christ-like actions that we're making, that's not persecution. But this is what will happen to you. If you do embody the good news of Jesus, if you do proclaim his gospel, if you are bearing fruit that comes only by having the Spirit in your life, people will oppose you on those days, but you will hear Jesus say, congratulations, right? Congratulations. This is a description. They did it to me too. So that's the kingdom of Jesus. This is what the kingdom looks like as he is calling his disciples together, as he's beginning to train them to begin to send them out. And these are the first words out of his mouth to these 12. And he contrasts it with these woes, which is really showing the kingdom of the world in verses 24 through 26. See, people of the world are actually living here for the here and now. You almost think that certainly Jesus has Pharisees or religious people in mind. I mean, that's who's been the predominant kind of people against him. Pharisees were well-off people. They were self-satisfied. They were self-righteous. They were admired, right? They, they looked like they were sitting pretty in his day. And here in verse 24, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. This word woe, it's not a threat. It could actually be translated something more like how terrible. How terrible. It's an expression of regret and compassion. It's, it's not actually a threat. And Jesus says, Woe. He's not against money. He's, he's trying to warn us against finding our security in money because there is a comfort in being rich. And Jesus acknowledges that. And he says, you're enjoying the comfort that comes from being rich. You're rich when others are poor, right? Woe to you. I'm really sorry to hear that you're rich. Verse 25, woe to you who are well fed, making the most of it. 
Make the most of it, guys. It won't last. Are, are those who are hungry in the world, does that, does that bother you? The day is coming when you will be hungry. So I'm sorry to hear that you're well fed because one day you will be hungry. He then says, woe to you who are laughing. You're like, come on, you're taking laughing from us, Jesus. Is Jesus against laughing here? Well, no, the word laugh, it's actually a negative word. It's a word that actually means the idea of, it's the idea of to gloat, right? So it's, it's what you do when you win and you look at people who lose and you kind of laugh about it. Like, yes, I am successful, right? right? It's, it's, it's celebrating, it's throwing the party after you got what you wanted and other people didn't, okay? This is a woe to those who have never shed a tear for something beyond their own loss. And Jesus is pressing in on people here, saying, do you enjoy the good things of life and only get bothered when you lose those? Right? Jesus is saying, do you belong to those who claim that Christians should always be successful and prosperous in this world? How dare you? Right? Do you not care about your brothers and sisters that are in prison? God's untouchables? Are you sure that you're following me? I'm sorry to hear that you're just laughing all the time unless you lose something that's yours. And then finally, verse 26 says, Woe to you when people speak well of you. You know, that must be nice. How easy to say what people want to hear. How comfy to adopt the worldview of people that you always live amongst. So when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in a progressive world, always adopt the progressive ideas. When in a conservative world, just adopt the conservative ideas, right? Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I'm so sorry to hear that you're, you're popular amongst the crowd you want to be a part of. These are, these are speaking to what, you guys? It, Jesus is speaking to the idea of people wanting power and having it, right? Comfort, then success, and then recognition, The world's values are completely opposite to Jesus and his disciples. And my concern is that the values of the church, especially even in the Western world, can so often morph into opposite values of Jesus. These words, you guys, these, these blessings and these woes, these beatitudes and these warnings, Right? They're either meant to comfort you if you find yourself in this place where you're seeing your poverty, you're, you're hungry, you're weeping, you're persecuted. It's meant to comfort you and redirect your eyes and propel them towards eternity. Or it's meant to warn us, to say, is that ultimately what you want? I'm so sorry for you, because that will end. Are these our values? Are these, these are the values of the kingdom. Are these... These are the people of the kingdom. Are these, is this us? Is this what we, we hold dear? Or is this perspective too radical for us? I think often what we think are our values are not actually our values. There's a guy named Michael Novak who is a believer and a, a political philosopher. And he wrote a book called Belief and Unbelief. And he talks about three kinds of values that we have in our daily life. He says, first of all, we have public values. These are things that I say that I believe, and I'm, I'm using these things to kind of manage your perceptions of me. He talks about then private values that we have, what I think I believe. So I like to think that I'm a generous person and that I want to be generous, but then I'm actually tested and I find out that I'm pretty stingy and I discover internally that I actually don't believe that. 
but it's, it's private. It's something that I struggle with. And then our core values, right? These are things that we never deviate from in our lives. We never deviate from our core values. So basically, if you want to know what I believe, watch my life. Look at the choices I make. If you want to know what you believe, then study your behavior, basically. What we say we believe and think we believe isn't what we necessarily believe. I can look at this, and that's why so often we read the Beatitudes and we're like, these are nice. But they're confronting my core, aren't they? Right? That's what a passage like this exposes in us. Michael Wilcox, who wrote a commentary on Luke, says this. He says, in the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. In other words, the mark of what makes you a Christian is the reversal of values. Right? Don't, don't envy the world. Don't be sucked in. Right? These, are, these, are pict- these are picturing people, basically, here in these woes, sitting on the beach, sipping their margaritas or their cocktails while a tsunami is coming in. Right? He's saying, your day is coming. Your day is coming. Right? These woes are, are displayed pretty powerfully and gruesomely, I think, in the story of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Um, if you don't know the story, Belshazzar was the Persian um, or the Babylonian king, and um, Cyrus, the Persian king, was closing in on him to take his city and his empire down. So he was going to be dethroned, and he actually knew this was imminent, this was coming. Belshazzar was definitely someone who could be categorized here in these woes. He was rich, he was full, he was filled with laughter as he sat on top of the world, right? And people spoke well of him, maybe just out of fear, who knows? Yet in Daniel chapter 5, as he, his end is imminent and he knew his time was ending, he, he just decided, I'm just going to throw this big party. I know the end for my reign is coming, and so I'm just going to throw a big party. So he invited in all his concubines, all his wives, all these people, and they just got drunk, okay? They just had a huge, crazy party, and while they're having that party, there was a hand that appeared and started to write on the wall. And the writing on the wall basically said, your days are numbered. This is what Jesus is doing here through his life and now his words. He's saying, woe to you. I'm so sorry that you're rich and you're full and you're laugh and you're popular and that's what you value most and desire in this life. You're not concerned about the rest. Why? Because your days are numbered. You can desire that, but that'll be your consolation. He's been showing us that the writing is on the wall because when Jesus appeared on the scene and he began to heal the sick, when, he, when you see him later begin to raise the dead or when he's feeding the hungry later on or ultimately when he's dying on the cross, you see the handwriting on the wall that the old kingdom and the old ways are ending. So if you're living for yourself, if you're spending all your resources on you, if you're, if you're not living like Jesus lived, and if he really did come, and he really did all that the Bible says that he did, that means that you and I are kind of like Belshazzar. We're just throwing a big party saying, this is it, and our kingdom is about to crumble. The handwriting is on the wall. Right? Jesus lived the life he lived. He touched people that no one would touch. 
He, he gave himself to the poor and the marginalized, and he dies on a cross. He, he gives up the glories of heaven and lays them aside and comes in utter poverty. Even when he comes into Jerusalem at the end, riding on a donkey, it's a borrowed donkey. Even when he's laid in a tomb, it's not a grand tomb, it's a borrowed tomb. Jesus gave up everything. That's why Paul says, he who was rich became poor. Why? So that those who were poor might become rich. Not with material wealth that we would find some fake satisfaction and comfort that isn't eternal, but that we'd find our richness in finding ourselves identified with Jesus for all eternity. These are the blessings and the woes that head up the teaching of Jesus that he's giving to his disciples as this new kingdom is being birthed. All right, these are the blessings. Those who appear to be blessed are actually cursed. Those who appear to be cursed are actually blessed. This is how far apart, guys, the values of the world and the values of Jesus' kingdom actually are. And it will become obvious when Jesus returns because the great reversal is coming. It will be obvious. The great reversal is coming. And it is. The first will be last and the last will be first. And we see this again and again and again as we go through the Gospel of Luke. This is the theme, right? That's why when Mary gives her song after she finds out she's pregnant with the Son of God, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So the person at the lowest place at the table that we see later in Luke will actually be invited to the best seat. The rich man who neglected Lazarus at the gate, we we see him later in hell asking for God to just give him Lazarus to give him a little bit of water, right? When we see the humble tax collector beating his chest saying, have merciful, have mercy on me, a sinner, he walks away justified. But the religious person who says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like them, right? He doesn't walk away forgiven, right? The great reversal is coming. The writing is on the wall. And for the believer, this is real. This is our perspective now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he talked about the Beatitudes of Jesus, he says that whoever says this is an easy thing to embrace and live by has never fully considered what Jesus is saying. I mean, if you grasp it, you'll respond to this word and say, God, save me. Save me. That this most often doesn't describe me. No matter if you are poor or even are rich or hungry or well-fed or whatever, the attitude that Jesus is presenting here is not something that often identifies us. This description exposes and condemns me. So Lloyd-Jones says, until you feel the terror of it, you have not fully grasped it. So you'll respond by either hating this or feeling despair, or you might begin to crave it. You want it. It's like you've been playing around in all the buttes in East County and you've finally seen the Rockies, you know? Or you've been dabbling about in Johnson Creek and you've seen the Columbia for the first time. Because we realize when we see this, man, we all fall short. I must be changed. You must be a certain kind of person. Whether that be spiritually poor, hungry, mourning, tired of the applause of the world. We need to become a certain kind of person. And that is, that is the whole point. How? 
You see, the way to become the blessed in this teaching is to realize that these blesseds are first realized in the person who's speaking these words. Before it ever describes you and me, you guys, it describes Jesus. Because as the Pharisees conspire to kill Jesus, what are they going to do? Where they're going to go and they're going to pluck out, verse 16, right? Judas Iscariot, to to be a traitor, to betray Jesus. We know that Judas followed Jesus very closely, yet what did he do? He desired the riches in this life. He desired to be satisfied in this life. He desired to be on top for others to speak well of him, and it drove him to actually betray Jesus, to get what he think he wanted. And in betraying Jesus, we see Jesus go from the throne of heaven to the cross. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men, so that what? So that he who was poor, he who was rich became poor, so that you could become rich. He experienced hunger, and he said, I thirst, so that you could ultimately be satisfied in Jesus. He he wept and experienced the anguish of the cross so that you would only know joy for all eternity. He was not only hated by religious people, you guys, he was not only excluded by the culture, he was not only reviled by the crowd, but he turned on, was turned on and left by even his closest disciples at the hour of his greatest need, and even those closest to him, like Peter, denied him. And then as he hangs on the cross, even God the Father turns his back on you so that you would know through faith in him that whatever sorrow you feel and that you weep over, you know will have an end date. As the highest of high went to the very bottom so that when we finally see ourselves at the bottom and we go, that's where I'm at, we hear Jesus say, congratulations, blessed are you, right? Be happy. If you identify with me because I've identified with you, one day you know that you will experience the great reversal. As people who live in the old kingdom, they they look at troubles in their life. And what do they say? They say, man, my life is being ruined. My life is meaningless. I need to get it back on track. But people are part of Jesus' kingdom when they experience the poverty, when they experience the weeping, when they experience the emptiness of the life, they know the kingdom of God is near. Let's just take a few seconds here and just take this time to pray and reflect on how God might want us to respond to His Word today. God, we pray this morning that as we hear these words that we would truly see your heart for all people, that you would um, just confront us 
convict us of the ways that we do look to this world to be our ultimate satisfaction, to be what we put our hope in, what we long for. And may we heard your loving warning today, God, that that would be what our consolation is if that's all we want. Lord, I do pray, um, I do pray that we would see the way that you live. We'd see your activity on our behalf. We'd see your path from heaven to the cross, to the right hand of the Father, and experience your work, God, and how you spent your life on behalf of us. God, I do pray that it would cause us to live as people in this world that really embody your life and your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to leave us with this word of benediction as we kind of get recommissioned back out into our lives this week. And here's the benediction, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. As may we be people this week who seek Christ, seek the things that are above, knowing that we have died and our lives are hidden with him, looking towards that great day when he appears. Thank you.